Hi everyone, I'm Catherine. Um, I'm going to be reading the Bible today and I'm really looking forward to doing this together with you in person soon. So we're reading from 1 Corinthians um, chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 to 17. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Well, as we commence this new series today in 1 Corinthians, let's pray and ask that God will help us respond rightly to his word to us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us uh, your word, which is active, challenges our hearts and minds. And we pray that you might be at work in us through your spirit today, that we might hear your voice clearly and turn in repentance and faith where needed, that we might hear and respond Grant us this, we ask, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we start a series today in this letter of 1 Corinthians, it's important to grasp at least a little of what this ancient city was like as Paul planted the church in the first century. We read in Acts 18 how Paul spent over 18 months establishing the church, and it was a city known especially for its prosperity, its idolatry, and sadly, its immorality too. Corinth had the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, employing about a thousand temple prostitutes prior to Roman rule. But the city was still renowned for these temple prostitutes, even in Paul's time, and they served the wealthy merchants who frequented the city. And this enmeshed the idolatry and immorality that marked the city's culture. It was also the most prosperous city in all of Greece at that time. And we know something of how daily life would have looked by considering a similar city, Pompeii, which Christine and I had the opportunity to visit in 1999. Although Pompeii is located in Italy, 
It was buried under four to six metres of volcanic ash and pumice in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in AD 79. And the excavated city offers a unique snapshot of Roman life in the first century because it's frozen in time at this place. It was, like Corinth, a wealthy port town, enjoying many fine public buildings, particularly temples to Apollos and Jupiter. However, the sexual immorality that also dominated Corinth is on display in Pompeii with the discovery of a lot of erotic art in the more luxurious private houses and a number of brothels with their own explicit frescoes. And it was into such a mix of idolatry and immorality that Paul planted a church in Corinth in 51 AD, a large port city of over 100,000 people in the first century. It was teeming with permanent residents of lots of nationalities, but in addition, there was this constant stream of sailors and merchants from all over the Roman Empire. And we'll see that this led to a number of issues in this fledgling church, including disunity, among other things. Which is why we have entitled this series, A Perfect Mess. Today, as we consider the first part of chapter 1, the text really drives us to consider the question, why should believers be united in the gospel? You know, as God drew together a group of Christians in this morally corrupt city, both Jews and Gentiles, Paul explains why believers should be united in the gospel. And the first answer to the question is this, because that's what saves us and draws us together. Because that's what saves us and draws us together. So notice again uh, the letter's introduction in verses 1 to 3. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The phrase in the last part of verse 2, who call on the name of our Lord, is a way of referring to salvation through faith in Jesus. The gospel that centres on Christ is the means by which sinners are saved. And more than that, it doesn't just bring salvation through repentance and faith, but it draws together people into a family of believers referred to as the church of God. And so the gospel should unite believers. The word translated church comes from the Greek word ecclesia, which means assembly or gathering. And so notice that the Corinthian believers are those that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. They're called to be holy people or saints. Now, both expressions in those phrases bring out the thought that Christians are set apart for the service of Christ. This is their new identity, having been drawn together by the gospel. And as we are moved to respond to the good news by faith, we are set apart for God. And so believers should be united in the gospel because it saves us and it draws us together into a new community. Now, of course, that's true of us here as we gather at WBC, which thankfully we'll be able to do again at the end of this month. 
And if you think of the 35 or 40 different nationalities that are a part of our church, the different cultures we have, the different jobs that people have week to week, the different interests, the various ages and stages of life that we're in, there's just no way that we would ever have met most of these people that we gather with if it wasn't for our common faith in Christ. Without us hearing the message of the gospel and being drawn into God's family, we would just never have had the friendships and relationships that we now have. And so this sense of belonging is because God has brought us together so that we're united. We're brothers and sisters who are growing together in the Lord. And that brings us to a second answer to our question of why believers should be united in the gospel. Because that's what grants us every spiritual blessing. Because that's what grants us every spiritual blessing. So notice again what is recorded in verses 4 to 9. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So notice that the Apostle Paul gives thanks for the grace or undeserved favour the Corinthians had received through faith in Christ. And this had led them to being enriched in every way, including in their speech and knowledge. And as this letter unfolds, these are two gifts that the Corinthians are especially proud of. You know, Paul notes that God's grace had accomplished this in them. And this actually confirms the gospel message that they've been preaching because it, it testifies to the changes that Jesus had produced in them. And so as they uh, awaited the return of Christ from heaven, they had been granted every spiritual gift. More than that, in verse 8 even, Christ would ensure that they continued to trust him until the end so that they would be blameless or perfect at Christ's return. Now this term, blameless, um, signifies that they are unimpeachable, You know that no charge could be laid against those whom Christ guarantees through his work. And so we are made righteous or perfect through faith in Jesus. Now this doesn't suggest that we don't sin once we become a believer, but that when God the Father looks at us, he sees the perfection of his Son because it's credited to our account. And this is another reason why we called this series A Perfect Mess. You know, while the church at Corinth was full of problems due to the prevalence of sin, it was also simultaneously true that they had been credited with Christ's righteousness. They had been made holy through faith alone in his finished work. And this was not an empty truth because it was grounded in God's faithfulness to his calling in verse 9 or his saving of the Corinthian believers through the gospel. It's kind of like how the membership of some human institutions you know, grants us access to all the benefits that come from being included in that group. 
So for example, my father is a member of the Sydney Cricket Ground, the SCG, which not only offers access to prime seats to view the cricket matches, but also the ability to enjoy all the other facilities. You can enjoy all the food outlets and the comfy seating areas. Uh, you can watch the players practicing before the match in the practice nets. There's a pool, there's a gym, there's tennis courts, and on and on the list goes. You are blessed with everything that the venue has to offer because of your inclusion. There's nothing that you fail to receive. You have the complete package. And it's the same with the gospel. You know, faith in Christ grants us every spiritual blessing. All believers are equally saved and equally blessed. And so the gospel should unite believers as they have this common bond together. Which brings us to a third and final answer to our question of why believers should be united in the gospel. And thirdly, because it focuses us on the cross of Christ. Focuses us on the cross of Christ. So notice again what is recorded in verses 10 to 12. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. There's a sudden change, isn't there, here in tone at verse 10 with the issue of divisions within the church raised after reports from Chloe's household. Paul's appeal in verse 10 shows a tenderness and an affection for the Corinthians because he's seeking to pastorally counsel them on their unhelpful factions. He's calling for a united frame of mind and judgment about simply following Christ and not lining up behind different human leaders. They have focused on the messengers rather than the gospel message. And so they're in danger of becoming disciples of flawed people rather than of their saviour, Jesus. Now, Cephas is just the Aramaic form of Peter. And as far as we know, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, and Apollos who followed Paul to Ephesus and then Corinth, they all had the same teaching the party choice would have probably been made on the basis of their methods of preaching and their personality. You know, probably Apollos was more elaborate and rhetorical than Paul in his speaking. But Paul is adamant here that this whole of approach of aligning yourself to different people is wrong. And so in verse 13, Paul's concern results in a series of rhetorical questions for which the answers are obvious. You know, Christ is not divided. Paul was not crucified for them. They were not baptised into the name of Paul. They should be united in Christ, whose crucifixion paid for their sin, whose name they were baptised into, regardless of who baptised them. If Christ is one, then his body, the church, must also be one. Their allegiance is to Jesus and not any person. And it doesn't matter who they were baptised by. If that caused any confusion in this regard, Paul is glad 
that he hadn't baptised many of the people at Corinth to add to that wrong thinking. Now, as he says that, it's not that baptism was insignificant. It's closely linked with the preaching of the gospel in the book of Acts. People were baptised shortly after responding to the preaching of the gospel with repentance and faith. But if baptism was confusing their allegiance, adding to these different factions, they needed to grasp that they had got caught up on a secondary issue. Only faith in Christ saves. Baptism does not save anyone. Rather, it's just an outward sign of an inward change that has already taken place. And so they had lost sight of the big picture of their unity in Jesus, and they had focused on secondary things. Now, it's easy to do. Sometimes we can miss the big picture in life, can't we? We're present at an event or a location, but we actually fail to grasp why we are there, and we focus on other things. A couple of decades ago, Christine and I were able to meet up with her sister and husband in Paris. They'd been living in London for 12 months, and we were visiting them for a holiday, and we were decided that we would meet them in Paris. And so we met at the Musée d'Orsay, one of the largest art museums in Europe on the bank of the Seine River. The museum holds mainly French art and houses the largest collection of Impressionist and post-Impressionist masterpieces in the world, paintings including Monet and Renoir and Van Gogh. But I have to say to my shame that I barely remember anything that we looked at because we were busy catching up. We hadn't seen them for a year. This was perhaps though a once-in-a-lifetime visit to a museum full of masterpieces, and I spent the whole time talking and ignoring the art. Not only can we miss the big picture if we focus on following messengers rather than the gospel message, but we can think that the power of the gospel is in the style or the, the presentation of the messenger rather than in the cross of Christ. So notice how Paul concludes our section in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. He writes, For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. At least some of the Corinthians were setting just too high a value on human wisdom and eloquence, in line perhaps with the typical Greek admiration for rhetoric. But Paul insists here that preaching with wisdom and eloquence is not the commission for gospel preachers. Faithful and fruitful teaching of the cross results in people ceasing to put their trust in human devices and relying on God's atoning work in Christ. And so the preaching of the gospel is not about drawing attention to a flashy preacher or a flashy service. It's drawing attention to Jesus, exalting him. And so the key is not depending on style, but the power of the gospel to save. Paul just focused on preaching Christ's death, and he did so unimpressively by his own account. Now, the reason that we are so often drawn to the outwardly impressive presentation, whether it's of God's word or anything else for that matter, is that we think that the power resides in the method. We think that the message's impact depends on the speaker 
or the engaging style of the service or its ministries. But once we focus on following individual leaders, we're in danger of thinking that it's their charisma which saves. Now, as we apply this to ourselves today, you might say, but, you know, there's nothing wrong, surely, with being clear and engaging, is there? I mean, why not do the most impressive presentation you can muster? Why not be the most engaging church we can be? Won't that be more attractive to outsiders, more helpful? Sure, at some level, those things are true, and certainly we seek to be clear as a church. But we have to acknowledge that there are pitfalls if we overemphasize the human element, because there can be this subtle shift in trusting in ourselves and what impresses our culture. Bill Hybels was the founding pastor of Willow Creek Community Church in South Barrington, Illinois, which had an average attendance a few years ago of nearly 24,000 people. It's certainly a Bible-based evangelical church, but since 1975, Willow Creek had championed seeker-sensitive services, using its Sunday services to reach the unchurched, and they aimed everything they did at the outsider as a result. Now, this vision was heavily influenced by business methods. Outside Bill Heibel's office hung a poster that said, what is our business? Who is our customer? What does the customer consider value? But after modelling a seeker-sensitive approach to church growth for over three decades, Willow Creek admitted in 2007 that they had made a big mistake. The change came as a result of their own four-year research effort. They found that the slick presentation was not producing real fruit in terms of mature disciples. Their methods and their style attracted a crowd, but people weren't growing. Now, directly or indirectly, this philosophy of ministry that church should be packaged with programs for the consumer has impacted many evangelical churches across the world. Willow Creek had been listed as the most influential church in America for a number of years in a national poll of pastors because it had promoted its methods around the world. But rather than gospel unity, a methodology can also potentially create factions among those that copy or don't. We're meant to be united in Jesus, which has the power to save us. The impact of God's word is not only dependent on our faithfulness to preach it fully and with depth, but on the work of the Holy Spirit too, which Paul will come to later in this letter. It's the spirit that brings conviction, not the charisma of the preacher or the style of the service. And this is a great encouragement to all of us as we teach God's word week by week in our various churches' ministries. Whether you're a kids' church leader or a youth group leader, whether you lead a home group, uh, you're involved in training events, God will determine the fruit. Well, as we reflect on this first part of 1 Corinthians 1 and consider the question, why should believers be united in the gospel? We need to grasp that it's because that's what saves us and draws us together. Secondly, because that's what grants us every spiritual blessing. 
And thirdly, because it focuses us on the cross of Christ, which is the power of salvation for all who will believe. Will you join me in praying? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we live in a world today which so easily aligns itself to different leaders and ideas and methodologies. We can get so caught up on the mechanisms and lose sight that in your church we should be united as one in the gospel. But it's not about people or personalities or programs but that you are at work drawing together a people that are your own through the preaching of your gospel and that you desire a people who are one. And we pray, Lord, that you might help us to reflect on that for our own context as we look at the church of Corinth and see the problems that came for them as they took their eye off what is central and placed it on that which is secondary. Lord, help us to be a church that is focused on Christ and the announcement of the good news that there is salvation in him alone. Lord, help us this day, this week, to be those who point everyone around us to Jesus, that we might exalt him and not anything that we do or say. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.